Welcome to the Cameron Diamond Ministry Podcast. I'm excited that you've decided to join me again this week. It has been a while since I have recorded an episode, and that's because, um, well, for one, ministry has been very busy, but two, um, I've been upgrading the studio a little bit, been getting some more equipment set up, um, some soundproofing done. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last um, several episodes, it seems like maybe if you heard kids in the background, um, and that's great. I mean, we have a homeschool program out of our church, and it is wonderful. It is so great, but sometimes the only days I have to record are Thursdays. Um, so I'm having to uh, troubleshoot and figure out how that works best for me. So change my schedule a little bit, maybe soundproof uh, where it is that I record. Um, so things get moving along, get better, and so this podcast is easier to listen to. So if you have any feedback, even regarding uh, just how this podcast sounds, um, I am all for it. Send it my way. You can email me at uh, Cameron at JonesvilleBaptist.com. Um, so today we're going to pick up with uh, studying the book of Matthew. Um, in youth group, we have been talking through the gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at the triumphal entry. So this is Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. And like I used to do, we'll take you know just one verse at a time. But before we get there, I'll fill you in a little bit about me. So I'm one of those kids, like I, I grew up in church. I um, believed in Jesus from the age of nine. Um, but as I look back on my life, like I can see that I was not committed to Jesus until I was 18 years old. And so all of that time, like I believed that Jesus was God. I was at church every time the doors were opened. Um, I would help lead Bible studies and I would um, lead worship services with our youth band. Um, and, and I took on a lot of ministry responsibility for a teenager and because I thought I was good. And I think I had fooled a lot of people. Um, but my personal life, I was not really committed to it. Um, I was involved with some pretty um, nasty things on a personal level. I was chasing after girls. Um, I mean, and, and I made about every uh, mistake in the book um, that you can make. And of course, all the things that I did are things that the world says are appropriate and right and moral. And we know that you know Jesus um, did not support those things. Uh, but that's that's how I was, and I was not changed as a person. My repentance wasn't real until I committed to doing life Jesus's way. And maybe you grew up in that same kind of environment where you grew up in church or some kind of Christian group. And maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and they taught Christian values, and they taught the Bible. And you grew up kind of like I did, where it wasn't really your faith right away. And it took another point down the road where your belief in Jesus turned into real commitment. Uh, maybe some of you out there are new Christians. You were not exposed to Christianity till later in life. Some of my teenagers have uh, parents that are brand new Christians. And so these kids are not saved. They're being introduced to the gospel for the first time. And, and praise God that I have a chance to minister to them. But maybe you can relate. But I want, what I want you to keep in mind here is that knowing that Jesus is God is different from committing to Jesus. So keep this in mind as we get into the scriptures this morning. So in Matthew 21, it says, When they came near Jerusalem and arrived at Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two of his disciples on ahead. So I want you to picture this, right? Mount of Olives, right? If you go online and you look at it or you find a Bible atlas, which those things are awesome, you should look at it, all right? It's like Jesus and his disciples are coming down the mountain and from the summit of the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem. Like it's right there. And so he sends his disciples on ahead to go get a couple donkeys. All right, now, we don't know which disciples these were. Doesn't even matter. Let's keep going. Go into the village over there, he said, and at once you will find a donkey tied up and a foal beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say, the master needs them, and he'll send them back straight away. So he sent them off at once. And this happened so that the prophet's words might be fulfilled. Tell this to Zion's daughter, look now, here comes your king. He's humble, mounted on a donkey. Yes, on a foal, it's young. And this is Zechariah 9.9, you know, a prophecy that's more than 500 years old. Amazing. Amazing that this was recorded in scripture before it even happened. Even if it's a small detail, that actually lends to its credibility. Okay, and, and so he sends these two disciples. These are we know that the disciples do not completely get under get or understand Jesus's mission just yet. Um, they're not there, but at this point in the ministry, like this is the last week of Jesus's life before he is crucified. At this point, they're kind of beyond questioning Jesus about most things. They're like. Whatever the master needs, we'll take care of it. You want a donkey? We'll get you a donkey. And so verse 6, it says, The disciples went off and did as Jesus had told them. They brought the donkey and its foal, and they put their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. The huge crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and scattered them on the road. And the crowds who went on ahead of him and those who were following behind shouted out, Hosanna now to David's son, God's blessing on the coming one, the one who comes in the Lord's own name, Hosanna in the highest. When they came into Jerusalem, the whole city was gripped with excitement. So this is incredible. So we've got the first group of the disciples Jesus shows up, gives them a direction, they obey it. They don't ask questions. Maybe they don't totally get Jesus. We know that from the context, right? Matthew was not written with chapter and verses written into it. It was just one story. And it, it would actually help us if we would ignore most of those numbers as we're reading, um, you know, the, the Bible. Because Matthew did not intend it to be read in segments. It was a whole Right now, it's helpful when we do scripture memorization. It's helpful when we teach out of it, so we remember where we need to go. Um, but in large part, for our own personal study, we're better off ignoring those things. And so the first group, right, disciples—they're obedient. They're they're doing great. They're going in the right direction with how they're choosing to handle Jesus. The crowds, on the other hand, and you know, normally if you're like me, when I was growing up, we had, like we would, as the kids would march into the sanctuary with uh, Bible costumes on sometimes and olive branches and we wave them around and, you know, and which is all fine. It's all good. But when we look at the historical context, 
these olive branches actually signified a victory parade of a mighty warrior. Now, Jesus was going to fight a mighty battle on our behalf, but it was not the battle that these crowds wanted him to fight or expected him to fight. The last time that in recorded history we have Jewish crowds doing this for someone is for Judas Maccabeus as he had overthrown the oppressors just a few hundred years before. And so they were treating Jesus as the up-and-coming revolutionary general while Jesus is riding on the foal of a donkey. What did the donkey represent? Peace. Jesus did not come to fight a physical battle at this point. He came in peace. But the crowds don't get it. They don't understand it. And they even misunderstand who he is, really. Now the translation I'm reading out of today is the Kingdom New Testament by N.T. Wright. Um, I'm giving it a shot. It's a very uh, good translation, I, I think so. Um, but it is different. It is different. Right? But the point here is that they say, the crowds do, Hosanna to the son of David. Was Jesus David's son? Well, he was the heir of David. Yeah, that's true. But it's not the whole picture. They're recognizing Jesus' humanity, but they're forgetting Jesus' deity. They don't get the fact that he's also God. Now, has he admitted that? To some people, he has. It's not necessarily a hidden fact, but he's not like outright telling the whole world because they would misunderstand him. In fact, he's not even telling the whole world He's even the Messiah, because the word Messiah meant something different to the majority of Jews during this time than God meant it in the first place. They're expecting the Messiah to be this revolutionary general, and Jesus instead came to fight the most important battle, which is the battle against sin and taking the punishment for our sins. And so they go on and they say, God's blessing on the coming one, the one who comes in the Lord's own name. Other translations say, blessing to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus was doing more than just coming in the name of the Lord. He was the Lord. And I know, like, sometimes we, we might look at that and say, well, Cameron, aren't you um, drawing some arbitrary points from this? Well, Maybe, but put your head in the mindset of these crowds and think about where Jesus would be in just a couple of days. Think about what these people wanted from their Messiah. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. In verse 10, it says, when they came into Jerusalem, the whole city was gripped with excitement. Right? And uh, I think it's the CSB, it says the city was in an uproar. When it says excitement, when it says uproar, it's not necessarily good. Most people were not necessarily pleased with Jesus. The ones who were pleased with Jesus were those who wanted the revolution. The ones who were excited in all the bad ways, right, they were angry at Jesus. 
They despised Jesus. These were the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who made up the Supreme Court, called the Sanhedrin. They didn't want Jesus anywhere near them. So it was in an uproar. And so these people ask, who is this? This is not, oh, who is this Jesus person? Now, people knew who Jesus was. This is sarcasm that Matthew is recording here. And what do the crowds say? Well, this is Jesus, the prophet. Whoops. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's true. Was Jesus a prophet? Yeah. In fact, all major world religions will admit that Jesus was a prophet. What Matthew is trying to illustrate for us here is that the crowds don't see him as anything more than that. Even though it was evident that he was. Now what about Nazareth? You know, some people just skip over the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth. But did you know that in the first century, Nazareth was a town with barely 500 people? I mean, this place was small. You couldn't have really been able to find it on a map. That's why in Philip says at the beginning of the gospel, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, it's, it's a place from nowhere. Right? And like... But nobody important comes from Nazareth for the same reason that people would probably also say that nobody important is going to come from Bethlehem. Right? And Bethlehem at least had a little more significance because that's where King David was born. And of course, we know that's where Jesus was born, but it's not where he grew up. He grew up in Nazareth. And so <laughs> these religious elites are like sarcastically asking who is this Jesus? And the crowds are saying, he's from Nazareth. I mean, imagine the absurdity of that statement then. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Why did Jesus show up? And so we've got three groups here. We've got the disciples who are obedient, but they still don't really understand. You've got the crowds who are excited about Jesus and celebrating him, but for all the wrong reasons. And we've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees who in the next three or four chapters are constantly challenging Jesus and he answers them with questions and with parables and they can't stump him, but they despise him. And as you read through the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, you come to understand that a lot of these Pharisees and they actually believed that Jesus could have been the Messiah. But he was a threat to their power. Some of them even came to faith after Jesus came back to life. Incredible, if you think about it. But at this point, they despise him. Now, you may be looking at this text and you may be saying, okay, I can kind of see where you're coming from, Pastor Cameron, but what does this have to do with me? Well, what it has to do with you is just because, just like the disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees, 
had to do something with Jesus. They could not ignore Jesus. You have to do something with Jesus, too. And a question I get a lot, and I think it's the wrong question after we've especially been studying this a while. The question shouldn't be, is the Bible true? The question should be, what do I do? What do I do with the information? And here it is. What you decide to do with Jesus determines your direction in life. Every person that's ever lived since Jesus lived, died, and went back to heaven. And don't forget he rose again. I slipped that in there a little bit. right? Of course, that's like the gospel. But what you do with Jesus determines your direction. determines where you go in life. The Jews have had to wrestle with Jesus since he lived. The Muslims and Islam has to have an answer for Jesus. The Buddhists and the Hindus all claim Jesus as prophets and gurus. And just like they all have to have an answer for this prophet, from a little unknown town called Nazareth, you have to do the same. And your answer to that question determines where your life ends up. What happens in your life? Because everyone, everyone in the world has an opinion about Jesus. And it determines how their lives are run. Jesus showed us ultimate love. And he showed us and taught us how it was we were to live with him and with each other. If you've seen on my podcast, I uploaded the Community Connection. That was a sermon uh, that I preached at church just this past weekend. And it has to do with this very concept. Jesus teaching us how to love God and love people. But if you don't follow Jesus, you have no reason to do it. But if you follow Jesus you're committed to doing life the way that God created you to do life, well, then you've chosen correctly. But if you don't choose Jesus, you're Lord of your own life. You have no reason to go with the flow as far as right and wrong. To you, then, morality is just an illusion. I think that's false. I think it's a terrible way to live. But the truth of the gospel is that without the Holy Spirit within us, we can't do that anyway. Right and wrong are useless comparisons because at our core we are evil. We can look around at the people who have their lives together even when it shouldn't make sense. And understand that the common fact, right, the common denominator in all of their lives is what they decided to do with Jesus. So think with me, imagine with me for a few minutes about how wonderful your church, your community, your state, this country, our world would be if more people had the Holy Spirit and committed themselves to living like Jesus. I don't think anything will be perfect until Jesus comes back again as the revolutionary general 
to redeem the world once and for all and for judgment day to come. But we can make some great strides as Christians, you know, brothers and sisters, if we would all continually do more and more how Jesus taught us to do. Thank you for joining me again this week. Again, if you have any uh, questions, comments, concerns, uh, maybe some feedback for me about how the podcast sounds so it can be improved, I'd be happy to hear from you. Until then, 